1: Hello, you're listening to Wish We Knew What To Say with me, Pragya Agarwal. How do you talk to your child about discrimination, privilege, power, race and racism? This is a podcast about talking with children about race. Covering all ages from toddler to teen, in each episode I meet with a parent, carer or educator to hear their experiences of having these vital conversations. Welcome to Wish We Knew What To Say. And today I'm really delighted to welcome Kodia Newland here. Um, as you might have uh, watched the recent um, series, Small Acts, um, which Kodia has written for Steve McQueen, um the BBC series, which has really, really inspired a lot of dialogue and conversation around um, Black British identity and, and the opportunities, barriers, and challenges related to that. Um, of this series, Lover's Rock was jury selected for Cannes and it opens New York Film Fest 2020. Um, Kotia has published seven works of fiction, including his debut, The Scholar, and I'm really excited to read his forthcoming novel, A River Called Time, and a collection of speculative fiction stories, Cosmogramma, which will be published by Gate in 2021. Kotiya's short stories have appeared in many anthologies, broadcast on BBC Radio 4 and included in Best of British Short Stories 2017. He has been awarded the Tainer Barber's Award for Science Fiction Writing and the Ronald Rees Bursary for Playwriting. He was previously Associate Lecturer in Creative Writing at the University of Westminster and is currently completing a PhD in Creative Writing. Um, Welcome, Kotiya. I'm so delighted to have you here. Hi,
2: I'm really, really happy to be here. Thank you.
1: Um, So I was just reading your um, background, something about background and heritage that you shared with us and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about it because it's really interesting.
2: Uh, So yeah, yeah, personally I was born in Hammersmith, I was born in West London Uh, I won't say what year, but my parents were uh, Caribbean. Uh, My mum is from uh, Black Rock, Barbados, which is uh, in Christchurch, Barbados. Really, really lovely parish. Uh, My dad is from Kingston, Jamaica, which everybody knows. I mean, really vibrant, amazing place. Uh, to have come from, I think. I'm really proud that my dad's from Kingston. I mean, anywhere in Jamaica would be cool, but uh, Kingston's got such a, a legacy. Um, and my mum came to this country when she was nine. Uh, she was brought over. Uh, my grandfather and my grandmother were already in the country and also my uncles, uh her older brothers were in the country and she came over with her her younger brother uh when she was nine years old and she moved to Halsden and she lived in harsden i think in, until she reached adulthood um and my dad came over with my grandfather when he was 12 um, and he lived in harsden too uh he and he left behind uh i think two brothers and a sister in Jamaica, I'm never really sure, and uh, I think he had about five sisters, and his mother were in New York, so uh my Caribbean heritage is uh jamaican chinese uh i I've, I've supposedly have got some some Indian in there. people are not never sure whether my great grandmother was part Indian or mixed race and uh and there's some Scottish in there that we've managed to trace, but my mum was doing a her kind heritage, and yeah apparently there was a there was a Scottish man that like in the very beginning in the early days of the Caribbean yeah that that the, uh the, can be traced uh yeah so so that's my personal history and then my family is just huge on both sides there's so many different people i couldn't even begin to go into that
1: <laughs> thank you for sharing that that's really um fascinating and i was actually talking to somebody earlier today about how we're all kind of citizens of nowhere and everywhere now it mm-hmm. the, all these mixed and we talk about mixed heritage now and so much and biracial, but it seems like all of us have all these kind of different origins and ethnicities and backgrounds all mi- mixed together and mashed together in okay. forming our identities. So how do you how do you see yourself? I'm really intrigued by how people form their own sense of identity.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty pretty settled on being, you know, African British, Black British, whichever way you want to term it. Yeah, um, I'm, you know, I'm I'm from here. I was born in Hammersmith, West London. If you ask me, you know, and that's where I'm from. You know, I'm I'm a West Londoner more than anything else. But obviously, my DNA and my heritage is is Caribbean, and then my DNA and heritage is also African. But you know, there's always been, you know, my my, my brother growing up. He was into martial arts and he really loved, 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 loved Bruce Lee. And Bruce Lee famously said, you have to have some Chinese heritage in your blood in order to be a true martial artist. And he was always happy that we had Chinese cousins. <laughs> He's like, OK, I, I count, I count. So I've always felt an affinity for 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 Chinese culture in a strange way. Even before I really knew, like I, I, I don't remember really, really knowing. But then I kind of said to my mum at one point in time, mum, is it like we have got? Chinese in the family, right? Because I can remember meeting my cousins and they were Chinese when I was really young, and she was like, Yeah, you do. So, you know, but that was on my dad's side, you know? So, yeah, you just, you just, you know, you get used to that. It all makes up who we are. And also, if you've got a, a you know, a kind of colonial heritage, or it's particularly, I, I can't really speak for the rest of the world, but particularly in the Caribbean, you know, uh, Jamaica's um, national slogan is out of many, one people, you know? So, so, it's part of who we are, you know. We just have to accept it, you know.
1: Yeah, it's really um, it's really interesting about, the, especially the Bruce Lee incident.
2: <laughs> my my brother was so happy.
1: <laughs> um, some of the guests that I've been speaking to on this podcast as well, especially there's kind of second-generation immigrants whose parents came here to this country as young people, or 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 even as adults. They've talked about how um, they've had the, while they were growing up. In some way, they kind of rejected that sense of their background and heritage because they wanted to fit in here, and they were rejecting their culture and heritage. Yeah. How how was your childhood and upbringing and kind of while you were growing up? Did you did you feel a really strong affinity with your with your Jamaican and Caribbean background? Um, and mm-hmm. how did you align that with everything else that was going on around you?
2: Uh, to be honest, I mean, I think my my childhood was split into two phases. So I was born in Hammersmith, West London, but when I was about three, my mum and dad moved to Uxbridge, uh, you know, uh, which is in Sussex, I think. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's it's kind of on the outskirts of London. And in those times, you're talking about this was would have been uh 1976. Uh, it was very very uh. Very white. I mean, I don't know how it is now, but it was very white and it was extremely racist. So at that point in time, uh, I think I did struggle a little bit with my heritage. Like I knew what the right thing was, which the right thing was to be proud of my heritage and my natural thing was to be proud of my heritage. So... You know, I remember being in school and in, in in nursery school. I, I would have been about, you know, four years old if I was in nursery school or reception class at least. And uh, I drew, I was drawing a picture of my mum and I was using brown crayons and the teacher got really angry with me and snatched the crayons out of my hand, started shouting at me and saying to me, "You must draw her pink, draw her pink." And we had this big slanging match and I refused to draw my mum pink, and and I was crying and everything. And then my mum came down to school. She had a real go at the teachers and there was a, it was just like. My early childhood was like filled with trauma because of race basically, uh, so before I even knew what was going on like I was, there was these big arguments and 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 um I was being pushed into a certain position, and I resisted that position, so I mean it was really bad, you know people would fight my mum in the street, people would fight my mum outside the school. Gates when she came to pick me up, you know, it was it was really really virulent racism, and um you get called all sorts of words sometimes by your friends, sometimes by people passing in cars, sometimes it was written on the walls. So everything we were talk about is small acts in the beginning. I lived that. Um, it was really bad, and I was a kid, and I was just like I felt like I was in uh some kind of hell, you know, because yeah, it was just constant. It was all the time I had to be thinking about race. So um I I I um didn't I resisted and I was constantly fighting myself and I was constantly telling people not to say things about me or make jokes about me and all this and all this stuff was going on but I did love like my culture my food my music things like that and I was very proud of it at the same time but I think it it's hard in a way like you just absorb certain things without actually realizing you're absorbing them and I really remember one time jumping up on my bed with my sweater or my jumper on my head so that I could have long hair so I put my head in the thing and I was like playing about like you know, jumping up with my brother and be like oh look we got long hair we got long hair And now when I look back at that I'm just like oh my god that's just so bad Yeah, you know? but that's what I did I did I remember I didn't think about it so as much as I resisted Something seeped in. And then, you know, uh, my mum and my dad didn't stay together. And my dad, uh, you know, moved out. He actually went to live with my uh, maternal grandmother, which is a hard story. (laughs) But uh, she put him up in those first early days. And um, my mum was in Uxbridge on her own. And I think she just decided there's no way. And she looked at me and my brother and she was just like, you know, what's going to happen to them if we stay? And so she moved me back to West London. So about seven or eight, I went back to West London, back in my culture, back in my environment. And, uh, yeah, it started to feel opposite.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's pretty shocking, isn't it, to hear these stories? I mean, you know that these things happen or happened or still happen, um, Mm -hmm. but it's always... When I when I listen to them and when I listen to a personal experience or story like this, it's really shocking. It just brings into focus how much a child's sense of identity is formed by how, where they're growing up and who they see around them, exactly. and how people react towards them. And yeah. and some of them, as you say, can be internalized sometimes because a child yeah. is constantly grappling with external pressures as well yeah. about how they people perceive them, and so it's it's so tough.
2: Yeah. I mean, at that point, I I definitely just wanted to fit in. You know, I wanted to be called, um, I wanted to be called Tony. You know, I did not want to be called courtier. Uh, I, I I, I just wanted to fit in. I just wanted people to stop talking about this stuff, you know, but at the same time, I was very much like, you know, how dare you say all this stuff about me, you know? So it was, it was a mixture of things. And I would always get into situations with other kids and, and things where, you know, kids kids would do things or say things and, and I'd be really, really angry with them. And I just think I, I spent most of my time being angry. That's one thing I remember is that I fought so hard against it and I got told off for not fighting harder and, you know, all this stuff. So so um, it was it was a really... Interesting time. Of course, I had a a kind of um, situation, much like Alex Wheatle, when I was brought back into the community <laughs> where I was just like, what's going on? And I didn't fit in, you know, I didn't fit in for a long time. But uh I like Alex Wheat or I tried my hardest to fit in and eventually, you know, I got and like Alex Wheatle, people came and took me under their wing and said, All right, listen, man, I'm just gonna look after you. And uh some of them I'm friends with to this day. And uh, yeah, it just uh I, I had a sense of uh community uh even though I was slightly different right from the beginning, I was embraced and I was accepted and I, I began to see blackness as something that I should love and that loved me. And then and then so I had I had a really it changed everything for me. I think I, I just really I don't know what would have happened if I'd have stayed in Uxbridge. I really don't. But I'm really grateful to my mum that she moved me out. And because of all the whole inner city stuff, my mum was always a bit like, I don't even know if I did the right thing. And I said to her one day, you know, you did the right thing, you know, Mama. She was like, Did I? Did I? And I was like, Yeah, you did. So she's still wrestling with that to this day. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think as a parent you always feel guilty. You're always wondering yeah, whether okay. they're doing the right thing, I suppose. Yeah. But I think moving at that age might it seems like a like a good age, perhaps. Because yeah. if it was later, then maybe it could have a larger yeah. impact on you and I was going to ask you about how did it how did you find moving to West London how did you still grapple with that whole notion of fitting in because because yeah. it must have been such a huge change for you
2: it was a massive change it was a massive change it's really funny there was a guy that lived on my road and uh he was Indian and I was like, "You used to live in Uxbridge." He lived on the same road. He used to go to my same school in Uxbridge. I remember, and he moved. He moved like wait, like years before. And then I get on this road, and he was going to the same school as me again. And I was like, you "Used to live in Uxbridge." He denied it. He did that. No, no, no. I remember you. I remember your name. I remember things you used to do. It was you. You were in Uxbridge. So it was very much like that. Okay, that never happened. You know, like even with with this with this uh, Indian guy, and uh. Yeah, yeah, it was it was it was a it was difficult in some ways and it was hard fitting in, but mostly it was okay. Mostly because everyone was just getting on with it and everyone was used to seeing someone all different types of blackness around. It was kind of like I got accepted, uh, in a way that I was never really accepted in Uxbridge. And um, yeah, it it it's just continued and as it, I like got more into how things are in 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 this side of London uh it it got better you know and then yeah I just I just I became like a real West Londoner I've been born there but you know I you know defend it to the hilt now
1: (laughs) yeah and uh, I think it must it must change a child's kind of sense of identity or personal identity when you are the only person in a in a whole mass of like a crowd of people who don't look like you and then you suddenly move on somewhere where yeah. More people are like you and then you feel like oh I belong yeah. here I think that notion of belonging is so crucial
2: really crucial and it helps it helps set. it helps set my sense of uh who I was but where I belonged and and it gave me kind of a foundation you know because not only was I from here but my mother was from here, and my dad was from here, and and my grandfather was from here. So I used to walk the streets of Labour Grove with my grandfather, and he knew more people in Labour Grove than me. People would be coming out of shirts saying, Hey, hey, long life. That's what they used to call him, long life. And like, I'd be like, What? I don't know, what's going on? And then I realized that my dad had been there since Sam Selvon days. You know what I mean? <laughs> I'm sorry, my granddad had been in Labour Grove since Sam Selvon days, and he could tell me all the old stories of West London. And so, uh, and, and the rose he used to live on, and he remembered people, he remembered people who were the mothers of people I hung around with in West London, and all this. <laughs> and people would recognize me down the street. They say, "Hey, hey, you're 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 so and so's son, aren't you?" I used to go raving with her. I used to go blues dances with her back. I was like, "Wow, this is mad." So that sense of like, okay, this is my place, right? This is my space. This is uh, this belongs to me. This is part of my heritage, not just my immediate heritage, but even before me. That just did so much for me
1: yeah yeah I think the sense of continuity is so important when you look back and you think Mm -hmm. this is this is history this is legacy and I'm connected through generations and I think as a first generation immigrant sometimes I think I find that maybe that is the challenge because when we move to a new place or new country and you're trying to make home you don't see that notion of continuity behind you in that place and your children don't see that immediate sense of com- continuity
2: and yeah, that can definitely. be a challenge i think that's oh, a really big challenge it's a re- it's a huge challenge but um i think uh i was lucky in that respect you know uh, and and then you know it just once you're in that space it's something about i don't know if it's specific to west london once you got to know a few people and say you went to primary school in the area then people from primary school knew people in your secondary school and then people in your secondary school then would have uh, parents who also knew my parents. So, and then, so you very, very quickly build up this real um, network of, of everybody who knows each other through everybody else. And next thing you know, you know, you've got like a really massive unit, and you've got a neighbourhood of people who all interact with each other and all remember different things about your heritage or your parents or your grandparents or my uncle who lived in Labatt Grove. You know, uh, you know, you just and, and and so you would just have this kind of protective unit. And yeah, my friends in South London, they were kind of shocked. Uh, I took them. We were doing a project. They're writers. And we were doing a project set in West London. I said, let me just take you around West London and we walked around West London, and they were just really baffled by how many people knew each other, not just in your immediate street, because I didn't even really live in Grove when I was growing up, I didn't live in Grove until I was like uh, uh, an adult, but uh, going into Grove, there's all these people that I'd grown up with that I knew, and, like, and it's just like, it's like hundreds of people, and I've not seen, I know that people do have it in other places, but I'd not seen it to that degree, and people seem always shocked when they, when they come home, as I call it, and see that we've got that. And like I said, I just feel that, um, yeah, um, my wife uh, was brought up in Gants Hill, and she had a similar experience uh, to my experience in Utsbridge, but she never moved out, so she was there the whole time. And she says to me that it's always really interesting, uh, you know, the, the effect that having grown up in a really solid community um, ha- had on me and my my upbringing, my sense of self. You know, she says you can really see uh, that, that I have a very strong sense of self because of you know, that foundation of all the people around me and the culture and all of these things that are ours, you know, that belonging
1: that we talked about earlier. Yeah, I think you growing up in Uxbridge, um, you talk about anger as well. And yeah. I think that people i think we talk about how there are stereotypes of black boys being more aggressive or yes. or yeah and i think that we don't talk enough about the kind of anger or the trauma that comes from having to face these kind of barriers or racism yes. or racial prejudice and what mm-hmm. that how that relates to to their mental health, but physical health, but also how they interact with the world. Then, because yeah. they're always ca- carrying this this notion of you have to, I have to be tough to fight everything yeah. that's going on around me. Yeah. Um, and I wonder, did all that was going on around you? Did you have explicit explicit conversations about racism with your mother? or did she talk, or at school, anything like that? Was this happening with children at that time?
2: I mean, not in as much as the school was leading those conversations. The school was kind of oblivious to it. And, And, you know, when I watched education, uh that was pretty much how school was for me growing up as well, you know, like the way the teachers were, the way they were taught to you with notable exceptions. I had an English teacher who's very aware of race. I think she's just come out of teaching school, so she was very fresh and, and young and we were her first ever class. And when we when we left in fifth year she left too. She like she's like, that's it, I'm done. And uh but she was very she would give us like lots of black books at a time where I don't think that was really happening. I, I'm not sure if she did it off her own back or it was kind of an Ilya directive uh, in a London Education Authority directive that you, if you had a certain amount of black kids in your in, in your school, your class, you had to give them some books. But, I mean, some of the books she was giving us, it didn't seem like anything that was on any curriculum, you know. she's giving us Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye and Chester Himes, like Cotton you know, Come to Harlem and stuff like that. I, I remember reading both of those books in school and um yeah it was just amazing it was like that that was that was a real eye opener and then other teachers seemed to be more liberal in their leaning and be like okay so we're going to kind of try and take you under our wing but then other teachers seemed a bit like they were kind of like undercover racist i never forget in one class i had a history teacher she was really nice everyone really liked her but she we could kind of walk all over her uh she was quiet she wasn't very strong and uh she was doing a class about um christopher columbus and to a you know we were majority black class and everyone's like, I don't want to hear about Christopher Columbus. He's a, a murderer. <laughs> I mean, and like the whole class just rebelled against it. And the teacher going, I know, I know, but that's what they tell me to teach. <laughs> I mean, that's what it was like in the eighties, you know, she was really upset. She's like, I know I, I, I shouldn't be telling you guys this stuff, but like, what can I do? You know, so, <laughs> so that was kind of very, very strange um but amongst ourselves obviously if we're saying that we'd all been taught by our parents and, and you know we were going to saturday schools like it says in education and we were getting we were going to the black book stores like grassroots in Labor Grove, and we were getting an education outside of our education my grandfather would tell me all sorts of stuff tell me about paul bogle in jamaica and marcus garvey and all this stuff and so yeah we were very very aware and we'd been very shored up by all of this stuff that we were being told
1: Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting about Christopher Columbus, because I remember learning about it at school uh, growing up in India. And I don't think we ever even had the awareness to question those the narrative that we were taught. And now I look back and I think, what were we taught and what we believed in at that point? Uh, it's yeah. really interesting about the whole how the notion of colonial um, colonialism is turned, flipped on its head, the narrative, and it is seen as this kind of he founded something or discovered something, or right. he saved people from, from right. doom. Um, so I think it's it's really um. It's really fascinating to hear that at least you, that kind of consciousness and that awareness was there already at that time, even without the curriculum.
2: Yeah, yeah. My mum had been in, in the Black Panthers when, when, you know, like, when she was quite young. And also, uh, you know, my grandfather used to say stuff to me like, you know, how could Christopher Columbus have discovered somewhere where people already existed? You <laughs> know, so like like you know, we were constantly being told uh that that what we were being taught was wrong and even not just by you know uh you know my mom and my grandfather I remember one of my teachers he was my design and technology teacher and in second year he said listen put down that stuff let me tell you about something that you should have been taught I'm going to tell you about phalidomide and he told me about the story he told the whole class the story of and that was our lesson for the day right and so so even certain of our teachers was were anti-establishment yeah <laughs> so, so yeah 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 so and then even then after he's like don't 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 tell anyone this happened yeah <laughs> so um it was a it was a wild education <laughs>
0: And now, save 40%
1: on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You talk and write um, a lot about, obviously, Black-British identity, and you talk about how you are very secure and growing up, later but also of course now as a we identify as a black British man Um and you've talked a little bit about before and I've read some of your interviews about how black British identity is different to American British identity American black identity and I wondered if you would elaborate on that a little bit quite intrigued yeah. by that
2: well I mean just you know our, our starting points are slightly different aren't they I mean there's there's the fact that I have a Separate. I have a heritage that is separate to my black britishness you get what I'm saying in a way that like african american yeah, in a way that ism or, or being african American culture is steeped in America. And then maybe if you can go back with some Africa, and obviously that's different for African Americans who are from the Caribbean. You know, they have something similar to me. But the majority of people, generations and generations have have been in America, and that that's it. So that first thing that 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 uh, my my heritage goes back to uh, the Caribbean, or other people's heritage goes back to. Africa whether that's Nigeria or Ghana or South Africa or wherever they in 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 the con on the continent they come from um that's slightly different that does something you know i have I have a separate heritage to the place in which i was born you know uh that that's that's a, a, the first thing but also what that brings as well is the fact that they have a legacy of slavery occurring on the land that they were born on and we don't you know we slavery largely wasn't occurring in this country even when it was legal you know it was to a degree but not there were no plantations here you know they were back in the country where we were born you know so that's slightly different as well you know there's there's a kind of um a disassociated trauma i think because of that because I mean, we face all sorts of emblems of the slave trade here, and don't even know it sometimes, you know, because there was there were things here, you know, there were um there's all the statues that everyone's been talking about lately, you know, there's been a legacy of statues that we've been talking about for years, you know, um there's buildings that have been erected and things, plaques, and all this stuff, you know, which is basically you know the the, the legacy of slavery, but the actual plantations. And blood in the soil, uh, isn't here in the same way. And 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 just to just to um put that in context, you know, there were uh auctions, you know, like they, I heard there were auctions in um, on Tottenham Court Road and the Oxford Street, you know, of of slaves. So it's not that in that sense, yet. Yeah, things were happening here in that sense, but yeah, the actual, you know, um crops being grown and 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 people being bred, that kind of stuff didn't happen here so uh, that's that's slightly different
1: yeah i think um the background um the the heritage um i think is different um which as you say it it the kind of trauma is associated or dissociated or direct that makes a difference but also it kind of demonstrates how dangerous it is sometimes to homogenize the whole group and identity into one label say no. black people uh everywhere um no. or i mean even even worse when you say bme or anything like that that's even worse without actually thinking of the context uh, of where we come from or where people come from and the kind of heritage and legacy that is specific to a particular place that makes a difference to what is happening today and how they see themselves today and uh, i suppose
2: totally yeah and the same goes for, for for being african british you know, uh, and 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 the differences between that and being, uh, you know, Caribbean British. You know, there there's some nuances and differences there as well. I also think that the the there's one other thing that I didn't mention, which is the um the fact that we we haven't been in this country as long. Like being being, you know, African British or Black British is a very new thing in comparison to being African American. Which, like I said, has got generations and generations of that. So sometimes I used to say growing up, you know, we've actually come really, really far in a very, very short space of time in comparison. You know, like so when people say, oh, we don't have this and we don't have that. You know, in numbers, of course, we've been here since Roman times and probably even before that. You know, We, we know this. If you look in the history books, it's there. But in numbers, we haven't existed in this way ever before. We're a very, very new phenomena. And so uh, yeah, like a lot of the things that the strides that we've made have been made relatively quickly if you think about it, you know. you know, Our civil rights movement has moved very, very fast and we're still, you know, behind in so many things. But I, I sometimes think that we're, we're too hard on ourselves considering you know, uh, when my grandmother came over.
1: Yeah. I think that, that, that notion of the strides that have been made in in representation is is changing I think has changed quite a lot in the last year mm. and um, one of the things of course is recently the series small acts that mm. has really brought on this conversation a lot how was that writing for you and how did mm. you find writing about some of these topics which might have personal resonance of course
2: um you yeah, know it's very emotional of course, you know, like, like, you know, in different ways. You know, I wrote two. I wrote, uh, and I co-wrote them with Steve, of course. But I wrote two. I wrote, I, co- I co-wrote "Lover's Rock," and I, 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 I co-wrote uh, "Red, White, and Blue," and um, they were emotional in completely different ways. Uh, obviously, you know, lovers' rock was euphoric and it was full, full of joy and beauty and passion and lust and you know all of these things that, that that are human traits and human emotions and we got a chance to explore that in a really deep and detailed way. And um, you know, red, white, and blue was about you know, obviously, a man who's trying to change an institution from the inside and also a man who has a kind of a, a turbulent relationship with his father for all sorts of reasons and 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 managing to uh find his way through both of those things simultaneously you know find come to terms with that or come to, to come to peace uh, um come to a peace uh with that uh in different ways um yeah a lot of the stuff in red white and blue particularly was really um it brought back a lot of the stuff that I was telling you about growing up in Utsbridge and being in West London even in the 80s, you know, and some of the stuff that was going on. And I could really draw from that, that, that reality, you know. Um, but mostly, I have to say, it was really fun. <laughs> even writing about that other, that, the stuff that was, was traumatic for me was kind of cathartic and getting it out and realising that, wow, there all this stuff and this was the culture and this is what we had and wasn't it a beautiful thing? Even if it was a struggle, it was a beautiful struggle.
1: I think the sense of pride really shows Mm -hmm. through as well. Um, Mm -hmm. I've been wondering about representation quite a lot and about how much we need to see ourselves, especially our children need to see ourselves on screens. Mm -hmm. And I think since Black Lives Matter, things have changed or shifted a little bit in terms of what we are seeing and how much visibility there is, although there was always this concern that it could be like a momentary thing and that once the momentum is over, then We don't know if things will really shift or change. Have you really seen a change since Black Lives Matter or things Uh, are changing?
2: There's definitely been a change. And I think that change has mostly been in people's viewpoints, which I find really strange because this is not the first time this stuff has happened. I mean, this stuff has been happening. I mean, what did people think the 2011 riots was about? (laughs) Like, What did you think? that? You really thought it was about trainers? You really thought it was about kids wanting to see more objects? You really didn't tie that up to what happened to Mark Duggan, like, and how unjust that was? Like, I don't understand. So I find it a bit strange, to be honest, to to to, to think about this in terms of, oh, Black Lives Matter has changed the conversation. In terms of the, the arts that we've been creating, you know, go back to my, my first novel. And my first novel opens with an act of police brutality. this was in 1997. My last play <laughs> concerns an act of police brutality and I wrote that in 2014 uh sitting in limbo and I may destroy you and 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 small acts were all in production before this moment happened and so what that says to me is that the moment is circular we're talking about the same things and the same things haven't been rectified or changed and so it seems relevant when it happens because it's like oh this is the perfect moment and they're talking about something that that um that has finally changed things um now in terms of Black Lives Matter, they've changed things. But basically it's been like a huge tidal wave which has been pushing at this wall. And eventually, I think more to do with the pandemic actually. It it I don't know if it broke yet. I think it at least it cracked a little bit, you know. And it remains to be seen whether that those cracks will be uh cemented up again or whether the whole thing will just collapse and the floodgates will be open, because I feel like we've been here before, especially in terms of the arts, you know, black British arts. We've been here before. When I first came out in 1997, it was supposed to happen then. And then there was a pushback and, it, and all that, that stuff was stopped, you know, and it was called Political Correctness Gone Mad. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I am I'm, think in terms of our arts, I'm really, really optimistic. But in terms of like changing minds in that sense, I'm quite cynical.
1: I would agree with you on that. When uh, everything was happening, I was just sitting there thinking this is not the first time that people have talked about it. Police brutality has been happening for a very long time. Initially, there was this reluctance to even accept that this happens here. People were yeah. talking when this happened somewhere else. Like in, it's an American problem. It's a US problem. It's not something that's happening here. And some of these conversations have been happening in media again and again. Every time something happens, yeah. there's more people from people of color or BME community or black or brown people are brought into media to talk about these things. Can you talk about your experience? Have you faced something like this? And it just feels like, as you say, it's, it's a cycle that keeps on happening. And when media decides that it's trendy to talk about it, then we hear more about it. So yeah. yes, I was very cynical as well. Um, I do, I do think that the conversation is changing, but sometimes it's very performative. Uh, just to fit the current trend, but what we're seeing more on television, perhaps, or in media or movies, that is certainly there has been a distinct shift in in the way to acknowledge that some of the racism or race it can be in insidious ways, or it's so deeply ingrained that we can't just dis- dismiss or ignore it. I think there has been that little shift.
2: Yeah, it's a tiny yeah, it's a tiny shift, and I actually believe that. What the change, the, the true change, the big shift will be when we turn on the telly and we see not something like Small X, but something that has that kind of power, something that has that kind of uh, it becomes that, that, that water cooler moment, as they say in TV. And we don't actually have to acknowledge the fact that it's a novelty, that people of colour are, are on the screens. It's just a, a talking point because it's good drama. That's going to be the major change. I want to see that day. I hope I can see that day.
1: Yeah, I hope so too. And I think that's something that I always talk about books as well. When we talk about mm. children's books and people mm. say we need to diversify their shells and they have to, to, to be exposed to different cultural backgrounds. And I always wonder why can't just we have black and brown people just doing normal things in books rather than having to make a point about that this yeah. is a book yeah. about black person or a brown yeah. child or something yeah, exactly. like that
2: yeah the fact the fact that you're making the point uh proves that we haven't done enough work or ha- enough work hasn't been done yet you know and the thing is, is about books uh unlike film because film is such a uh it's, it's about money isn't it it's about having a certain amount of money to do these things and that and with that money comes a certain amount of privilege books has there's a certain amount of privilege too but not as much you yeah. know but but you know the stuff's out there there's so much. There's, i've seen so many books out there that you know have uh uh people of color in them whether they're written by people of color or not And um, sometimes i think it's quite selective to go into the bookstore and see a whole load of books written by uh, people who are not of colour About people of colour And the books that are written about people of, By people of colour are not in the bookstore I can't find those books and these are award winning Writers and I've gone to look for this specific book I can't find it in the bookstore but I can find Certain others so that's another thing that Would uh, need to be rectified But I think, I think You know these p- People are writing these books so it's about Just like publicising them more and getting them out there More and starting a discussion about what's Already there you know
1: yeah, absolutely. So you have two children, Kotia, don't you? Mm. And um, how old are they? Uh,
2: I have a son who is 12. And I have a daughter who is
1: five. And they're mixed heritage, so to speak, because your wife's got an Indian.
2: Yeah, my wife's got an Indian background. And yeah, I am
1: who I am. <laughs> yes. So how, do you, how did your children react to Black Lives Matter? Did they Find that kind of that kind of watershed moment or that's something that has always been in your family that you've talked about
2: all right so so the way that we have decided to raise my kids might be interesting to some people, I think, because uh my wife went through this experience in Gants Hill and because I went through this experience in Uxbridge, we decided to try and let them have their childhood so we wanted to raise them in a manner where their race is normality and they are not othered i didn't want to other them in my house so as far as i was concerned we do talk about aspects of uh, racial heritage racial history but for especially when they were very 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 young i did not talk to them about racial discrimination uh, instead, what I did was try and surround them with a racial foundation. So in our house, it would be normal to see, um, you know, books by writers of colour. It would be normal for me to read them. We've got posters. We've got, you know, like we, we've got pictures. We've got art. We've got sculptures. We've got like, and we, we surrounded them with those things. So they were very aware of where they come from. And I didn't, I didn't talk about that stuff. And then as soon as we they they got to an age where i thought they might start to understand those things and also they were you know the school was very good and the school was that was talking about south africa and apartheid with my, my son and you know this and that and you know and colonialism and slavery and so then we had those conversations as well alongside that and uh so so they had a grounding in normality in them their where they came from being normal and who they were being normal uh, we coupled that with going back to uh india quite regularly you know going to africa quite regularly going to the caribbean quite regularly and just making just making sure that they, they they understood you know their their, their place in the world uh, a little bit better before we started having those conversations so by the time uh black lives matter came along and what happened to george floyd i could explain it in some kind of context you know uh that was the, that was the plan anyway
1: no i think it's a big embedded in in their cultural uh, heritage and identity and understanding where you come from i think it's so crucial for a yeah. child and i think that's seems really um it's an absolutely perfect way to do it because you are both quite secure in where you come from yeah. and you're quite. Um, accepting and just just completely comfortable with it and so surrounding a child with that them knowing about it them traveling to those places and seeing other people like themselves and knowing that this is part of who I am just without any question or any kind of debate I think is so just so perfect
2: yeah yeah thank you I wasn't I mean I I Sometimes you know i I just wondered you know, to be honest with you, it wasn't like cut and dried like, oh, I've done the right thing, like i was saying to you earlier, you know, I was like there were certain conversations that we were not having uh and i and i um we wouldn't even discuss for a long time, we wouldn't even talk about people being black or white, you know, we just refused to have that kind of conversation, and even now, I think my my son, they both find it quite confusing. It's funny, my daughter is really, really more aware of um skin colour and things like that than my son was and I think that's because cause a lot of this stuff is gendered as well you know like when, when you look at the way that girls are dealt with in terms of their ideals of beauty and stuff it's just like they can't help it it's like osmosis they get a lot of this stuff with, without dialogue you know it's from visual cues and stuff like that so she's very we, we're gonna have to work on that we are working on that you know in terms of how she views herself and how she views her her, her skin color in particular you know um but but um yeah my, my son we were we were able to uh avoid a lot of that talk and just avoid calling people white or black for quite a long time and and then until he had an understanding of what that meant politically, and even now we still have discussions about it because he's like, it just, he's like, you know, he said to me, it doesn't really make sense. You know, like you know, that, that person's not white and that person's not black, you know, and and, and and white can be so many things and black can be so many things. And so we're having those kind of discussions about it, which is what I think a lot of adults even have, you know. And there's no um, hard and fast answers, but, but we, we keep trying to have a continuing dialogue with them both on it, you know, rather than be an absolute.
1: Yeah, I think what you mentioned about girls having these external, really extra pressures on them because of the whole... Notion of um, beauty, as you say, is so idolized and rooted in the kind of these Western ideals yes. um, in yes. certain skin color, in certain body shapes, in certain way that we, girls mature and and hair and everything like that. The, those pressures are more certainly, and so it is very gendered. And I've noticed noticed that with my own eldest daughter about how she struggled with that because she was predominantly in white spaces and mm-hmm. and her body matured at a different rate, um, mm-hmm. and so brown and black. Women can be hypersexualized sometimes as well because yeah. of the way they mature. And so she never felt like she was. Beautiful, even yeah. though she got these messages so much at home all the time about bolstering yeah, her yeah. identity and esteem. Mm-hmm. So, I think that, that is really hard to do that. And I think for that, perhaps representation and role models are very important because they need yeah. to see themselves on this whole range of beauty rather than one particular template that they yeah. are good.
2: We have a lot of books and magazines that we get for her. My mum's just been buying her some stuff. Uh, I think it's a magazine called Cocoa Girl. And she's got that and she's looking at that and you know, so so we're just trying to again, we try and be very subtle about it and just like make sure that these things are in place. But like you say, it's even if you do all that stuff, you still got the outside world and what they see, you know, like the representative beauties are vastly different outside your door, you know? So uh, you know, there's that to combat with. And so like I said, I don't necessarily feel like I've nailed it or anything. I think this is gonna be an ongoing you know struggle battle whatever you want to call it probably for the whole of their lives you know until they get to a place where they feel comfortable with it you know I, yeah they do, you know
1: I hope so but um but what you mentioned with with boys or with your son especially like it's such an interesting conversation about these labels that we assign people and boxes mm-hmm. like somebody's white or black or brown but it's a whole spectrum and it sometimes yeah. can be very confusing for a child if you to to understand where they fit in and do we need to be in a box or do we need to have a label and what how do I call myself am I a brown person or am I a black person or am I just both or you know yeah
2: especially because he's mixed heritage you know he's like yeah where do I fit in that I mean he's lucky enough to have a few people around him that are of the same heritage and that's that's I'm so you know really glad for that he's not like the only person uh but um Yeah, it's still difficult because, you know, is he like me or is he like his mum or is he neither? And, you know, all of these things I see going on in his head. And then, you know, there are certain uh, people of African heritage that he looks just like. (laughs) And there are certain people of Indian heritage he looks just like. And it's like, yeah, it's just so, I can see how it can be slightly confusing and and a bit easier for me and his mother, in a sense, because we we fit in a more stereotypical way.
1: Yeah, my children are also mixed heritage, so white and Indian. And um, I worry about that because they don't have any other role models. So from my husband's side, everybody is white. And from my side, everybody is brown and Indian. There's no mixed heritage <laughs> children. So their cousins or anybody's, not nobody's mixed heritage. So I, I wow. worry about that a little bit about how they are going to shape the sense of and they're also quite white passing but, but with black, dark hair and dark eyes so yeah. <laughs> so I think they have they will have certain notion of privilege because of big white passing which is something I think I will have to have a conversation with at some point
2: yeah 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 I mean I've seen some people have some really healthy interesting conversations with their kids like that and 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 where well, I've been actually impressed with the way that they they view the, the fact that they're white passing uh and I've seen it go the other way as well I mean my kids Uh, I think I would say they definitely look of uh, mixed heritage, but they actually look mixed heritage, like white and black. If you had their voice, so it's really, they look—they kind of look almost like the stereotype of a mixed heritage kid who's white and black. So that's really interesting. And we were a bit like, "Oh, how did that happen?" because you, know, you know we're both—we're both quite dark. <laughs> so, like, yeah. But um, yeah, it, it's, it's, I, I find comfort in the fact that that, that for them. There's there's a lot of people who look like them around them and, and and in our family there is you know we've got like lots of mixed heritage um, um you know uh, adults and kids you know in our family so yeah they, they actually look like their cousins more than anything you know <laughs> which is kind of which is kind of cool um and also just also I I remember being very aware of their schooling like I you know because, I suppose because of what happened to me you know I was like I am not bringing my kid up in a school where they are the only ones they have to be around all different types of people so they i need them not just to be comfortable with people from our heritage but people who are not as well so you know if someone's muslim or someone's you know like slovakian or something like it needs to be normal it needs just they just need to have because that's the upbringing i had when i came to west london i was friends with all different people from all different parts of the world and you want to be comfortable then to be comfortable with people from different parts of the world and comfortable with difference, you know? And so, yeah, we, we wanted to make sure they went to a school where that was integral to the way that they 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 educated, but also to the actual makeup of the school itself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that is really, really important. And even though, as I talk about my older daughter who went to a very white school, she went to a specialist music school which had children from all over the world. So they never she was exposed to different nationalities in a way even mm-hmm. though and and even though she was the only brown person there yeah. um and and i find that i think it's a challenge for us now because we live in the northwest and we live in a small village where my children's growing up without a sense of the world being so multicultural and diverse and i yeah. and we we are having those conversations now at home about whether we should move and be somewhere because i really don't want them to grow up in a place where they don't see the world how it is, and yeah, they yeah. then go out and be fearful of people who look different, you know, because
2: that, yeah, or people who look like them. Like, I was talking to Nikesh the other day, and I'm saying uh, I make a joke at home I want my son to be able to, and my daughter, sorry, but it's just because my son was there first. But I want him to be able to go into a Caribbean restaurant and look at the menu and know what he's going to eat. <laughs> you know, I want him to feel, and, and the same for an Indian restaurant, I want him to feel comfortable with all aspects of his makeup you know with heritage to just be like yeah i know that and i know that and see it as an asset rather than a deficit you know but also be comfortable in, in in british culture as well and 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 feel proud of that proud of the things that you should be proud of and question the things that you should question in in all of our cultures not just not just like it's a wholesale okay you know black good white bad you know what i mean people you know they've they used things in this way you know they say oh woke wokeness and political correctness gone mad but it's all that's the binary but it's about just being um at home but also critical with every aspect of your being
1: and how to encourage our children to think critically and what yes. you'd say about being comfortable i think it's really important for me like my four-year-old um two when we first took them to India last year, they were a bit fearful, they had not seen so many brown people ever ever in one place and it wasn't because they were biased or prejudiced, it was because they were unfamiliar to them and they were very overwhelmed with it all and I yeah, yeah, and it really initially upset me because, like, I don't want them to feel like this. Yeah, sure. But now, if they ever want to listen to an Indian song or eat an Indian sweet, it makes me really happy because at least they're connecting <laughs> yeah, with that yeah, part yeah, of yeah. their heritage. Well. Yeah,
2: exactly. I just think, like I said, normalizing it is really, really key. And uh, my wife's cousins, they're mixed heritage uh, Indian and German, and they're both really, really steeped in their indian culture and their mum made sure of that so they can all cook indian food they all like feel very comfortable wearing saris they've all traveled around india you know like so as a family i just think it's so great to see you know that like and it just you know wherever you come from in the world i always expect people to be proud of where they come from i don't care where you come from you know i mean really and and again like i said the the racist that think that uh we we're expecting British people not to be proud of where they come from. And that's not it. We expect them to question the things that don't work, but also be proud of so many things. There's so many good things that came out of British culture and things that I, 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 I'm proud of being a part of myself, you know, but the things that we shouldn't be proud of, we should, we should talk about and We should say, okay, well, maybe we could do that better moving forward, you know? And like I said, it's the same for our, our cultures too, our cultures of heritage too. But to see someone who, who, who really feels at home and comfortable in themselves you know in lots of ways but you know especially uh culture and heritage is really um i don't know i love it i love it you know i love someone who can sit down and break down to me british history and i really like you know like uh, i don't know like, like raw page from comma press or someone like that who could just be like okay this is british history and this with that and i'll just sit down and listen and be like ah that's so fascinating you know how can you not be curious about the world in its entirety i just don't know <laughs>
1: okay. yeah me too and and i think we sometimes as you say go so fall back on these binary divisions rather than looking mm. at the whole spectrum of yeah, yeah. things and and the whole british history the whole multi-layered nature of it that's an asset that we should really be proud of as well and oh, yeah. and yeah. i see mixedness the not as a challenge sometimes and i think it's it's such a such a good thing for children to have that, as yeah. as different parts of their identity be shaped by different cultures and heritage. That's yeah, really yeah. true citizens of the world. I think yeah, really yeah. yeah
2: But it's also been part of our natural evolution as as a human race. I mean, it's part of our success is that, that we've we've mixed and we've shared ideas and we've done all sorts of things together as a race. You know, and to, to, it's been going on. For since time began you know i mean we've been doing this so so it's really strange this idea that everybody should settle in their you know, distinct parts of the world and there was no mixing that happened before because when you really look at the history books that's absolute rubbish that wasn't going on i remember going to kenya uh and we went to mombasa and we visited a museum and they had um you know Crockery and pots and bowls and stuff that had come from China, and it turns out that Kenya had been trading with China way before colonization, and they had all the you know these artifacts there to prove it. You know, um, you know, there's so many examples. It's just it's just crazy, and I just I, you know I, I think yeah yeah thinking of it uh, f- from a position of abundance, you know, rather than lack and things that you need to defend is 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 a much stronger position.
1: It's such a perfect place to stop. And I think I could talk, speak with you all day. There's so much <laughs> we could talk about. And it's been sure. such a pleasure. Um,
0: thank
1: you. It's just amazing to have a chance to have a conversation with you and to hear your perspective on this. And thank you so much, Koti. It's been lovely. Thank you for listening to Wish We Knew What to Say with me, Dr. garwa If you enjoyed this episode, you might also like the accompanying book, which gives scenarios, questions, thought starters, resources, and advice on how to tackle some of these tricky conversations around race and racism with children. Wish we knew what to say. The book is available in hardback, ebook, and audiobook from all good bookshops and online retailers. That's all for this week's episode. Please subscribe for more. See you next time.